I didn't learn a language other than English as a kid. And that's despite the fact that my father was born and raised in India. He just never thought it was worthwhile teaching me and my sister to speak Urdu. And I feel like it was a real missed opportunity. My name's Jamila Rizvi, an author and a commentator, but most importantly, I'm a mum to three-year-old Rafi. And you're listening to Baby Lab, a babyology podcast about how babies learn to communicate. In this episode, we're talking about raising bilingual babies. Will it confuse them, maybe, or even cause speech delays? Alternatively, maybe bilingualism is the future and the key to your baby's best shot at being a musical child genius. All that and more coming up on Baby Lab. Hi, I'm Amaya. And in my family, we speak Spanish and English. Mm. That one in Spanish. Dos. Tres. Cuatro. Cinco. Seis. Babies don't speak English, or indeed any language, when they're born. They have to learn it from scratch. So a lot of parents, myself included, worry that it might be a bit confusing for a baby to be hearing two different languages at home. When I first had Rafi, I had so many questions. If a baby doesn't know what English is, then how would they figure out that you're actually speaking French? Do bilingual babies start to talk later than monolingual babies? And is that a problem? There's a lot of urban legends about bilingualism. Some that come to mind are that learning two languages is going to hurt my baby and that my baby's not going to be good at either language. That is so not true. That's Dr Karen Mattock. She's a researcher and lecturer at Western Sydney University who has a particular interest in bilingual babies. We speak of these delays in bilingual development. People are often really worried about these. So little Mary might be learning just English and is speaking in sentences, but little Johnny, who's learning two languages, might be a little bit behind and not saying many words at all. So we make the mistake often to compare bilingual children to monolingual milestones in language development. And if you do that, you're always going to see that they're a bit behind. But the reason it takes a bit longer is there's more to learn. It's not to think of it as a delay, but a different developmental course, so a different course in which language is developing. Because for little Johnny, he's got two languages to learn. So it's two entirely different languages that he has to master. For a long time, it was thought that speaking multiple languages in childhood would lead to developmental problems. That's Dr. Mark Antonio. He's an expert in bilingualism and language learning at Western Sydney University. For some reason, bad science has a way of sticking around and we don't really, unless if you study where these claims come from, they, they tend to just sort of linger. 
there were big problems with these studies. These were studies done during the First and Second World Wars. Uh, they were refugee children who had not been in school due to wartime. They arrived in the U.S., for example, and performed very poorly in intelligence tests. And the reason for this poor performance was attributed to their bilingualism. So that you can see the problems in that sort of conclusion. Unfortunately, even today, you might get a recommendation from a pediatrician or a speech pathologist saying it looks like your son or daughter is slightly struggling. Why don't we simplify their language environment? Which means in Australia, not speaking the language other than English at home, so that we don't confuse them. And my my son is an example of one of these children. As an expert in the field who is bilingual himself, Mark Antonio knew the science behind this persistent myth was unreliable. But it turns out even experts aren't immune from the affliction of parental nervous doubt. So my my son, he was exposed to two languages from birth. I made the decision that I would only speak Greek to him. He would understand everything in both languages. We could go through picture books. He could point at helicopters, aircraft carriers, bulldozers, diggers. But we were concerned because he wasn't making many sounds. He was about one and a half. He would grunt. He would make noises. We could understand if it was a yes or a no. He started saying a few things. Not too many words, though. Half a dozen words. So we go to see a pediatrician and we say, you know, I'm the father, I'm an expert in speech development and bilingualism and perhaps I'm being too pedantic. But at the same time, I don't trust myself because I have an emotional connection and I want him to be looked at by an expert that doesn't have that connection. And he says he looks very bright and very social and rules out autism and says, you know, I think he'll be totally fine. Why don't you just try and interact with some children, put him in a playgroup or a daycare, and come back in a few months? A few months go by. His son is still not saying very much. But the paediatrician says, you really don't need to worry. And I said, look, like, at what point are we going to worry? Is he going to be three and four and five and we're still going to be saying we're not worried? Like, he's not talking. He's not making noises, right? You think to yourself, what did I do wrong? Should I not have spoken Greek to my son in those first 18 months? Did I harm him by doing this? I know it's crazy, right? I mean, I did my PhD thesis on this stuff and it still was not enough to inoculate me from the panic and the parental guilt that just suffocates you. So he says, why don't we have him assessed by a speech pathologist? And she gave us some exercises to do in front of the mirror. And to cut a long story short, within six weeks, he went from saying those six sounds to saying things like, can I have a motorbike? Please. So it was, it was a vocabulary explosion right before our eyes. His son is now five and learning to read like any other kid. But the experience has really stuck with Mark. 
As parents, we tend to compare and contrast our kids with kids of a similar age, and we get worried if anything feels like it's behind. And then we think, what might I have done to cause that? The, the truth is that the stimulation that you give your children, it's not going to harm them. In some cases, I mean, we were lucky, if you want to think of it that way, that it wasn't something more permanent. But if it was, it wouldn't have been due to our, you know, reading too many books to him. Okay, that, that's ridiculous. Having said that, if you're concerned, by all means, you should see a GP because a child can have a language delay regardless of whether they're bilingual or not. However, it's important to keep in mind the direction of causality. So that child would have had those delays whether they spoke one language or ten. Hi, my name is Zola and I'm going to teach you how to count in Arabic. Wahad means one. Nen means two, Tlete means three, Arba means four, Kamse means five, Sitte means six, Sabha means seven, Tmene means eight, Tisha means nine, and Hashra means ten. I'm Jamila Rizvi, and you're listening to Baby Lab, a babyology podcast about how babies learn to communicate. In this episode, we're talking about raising bilingual babies. We know that baby talk, the cute, silly voice that we adults use with babies, is actually super important and that it helps babies to decode and learn language. But if there are two parents speaking two different languages to the baby, surely that's got to be confusing. Doesn't baby mix them together? That's actually, it's a really excellent question. How do these babies know that, you know, mum's speaking English and now mum's speaking French and that these two languages are different? So they're actually really good at handling speaker information. They're little statistical learners. So what babies do is they actually track the rhythm patterns of the language and where pauses are used and where stress is used on words or emphasis is used on words. And they can pick out really quickly from within the first couple of months of birth that one language is different from another language. And once they have that realisation that these languages are different, Everything they're hearing then from each of those languages, they're sort of put into each category. That's one of my favourite studies that has shown that infants or babies might be able to separate languages way, way earlier than was previously thought. In this particular study, they looked at pre-verbal infants. So these were babies that were not able to talk. They're at the babbling stage. And they had a French, a Canadian French-speaking father and a Canadian English-speaking mother. And they measured babbling sounds in the presence of the father and babbling sounds in the presence of the mother. And by doing fine-grained acoustic analyses, they found that the baby changed the way that it babbled depending on which parent was in the room. It did a French type of babbling for the father that only used French. 
And it did a more English type of babbling when the mother was in the room. So this is very sophisticated type of thinking for a, a baby that can't even speak. And it tells us that they know which language is appropriate with who. And in order to do that, you have to know that the languages are not the same. Otherwise, how can you do it? You can't do it, right? So yeah, there's a lot more going on. We should give babies a lot more credit than we do, I think. Little kids mix up words all the time. They are, after all, still learning. When it rains outside, my little boy still asks if we can go and jump in the muddy cuddles. But what research has found is that using both languages at the same time, switching one and another mid-sentence, might not actually be a product of confusion. It might be something else. It's perfectly normal for a bilingual adult or child to use their two languages in ways that they deem appropriate. This is called code switching between languages. And it doesn't mean the infant is confused at all. The baby is just using all the tools that they have to communicate. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with using, uh, in my case, Greek and English when I'm speaking to some of my school friends who speak those same languages. And we know that when they manipulate language in such ways and switch from one language to another and back again, they are not doing it in a haphazard, accident-prone way. You can do it in clever ways that make things jokes. There's, there's humour that wouldn't be apparent to someone who's not bilingual. So it's, it's a sign of skill and efficiency in processing. And it's not something for parents to be worried about at all. Tuning into other languages, other patterns or speech sounds, learning two words for the same thing, an understanding that mum speaks one way but I have to talk to grandma in another way. These are the challenges that bilingual babies, once they become children, have to overcome. But science is starting to understand that it is these exact tasks that are leading to a whole range of positive impacts in the brain of bilingual infants. Learning two languages has wonderful benefits to the brain. It makes the brain more flexible, okay, able to switch between tasks very easily and to remember and store and manipulate information that you're hearing. So children that are bilingual already show these advantages because they're constantly switching between these two modes and attending to two, you know, quite often very different languages and they need to sort of shut down one part of the language in the brain and activate the other one. And across the lifespan, we see these benefits of bilingualism in adulthood and into older age as well. So there's some evidence that using two languages offers great benefit to preventing memory decline in older age. Whether you speak one or two or three languages, they probably use similar brain regions, similar networks, similar machinery, if you want to think of it that way. But in using multiple languages, additional brain regions are needed not for you know the vocab or the the grammar but just for the managing of the languages so you need areas that control your attention and tell you in this setting i need to be speaking english not that other language so i need to just keep that in the background 
It's like you can think of it as being in a job interview and you need to speak in a particular way, not the way you'd speak at the pub. So you're you're inhibiting certain words, you're trying not to swear, you're trying to be polite, right? So it's it's a similar management process. And that is one argument for where this bilingual benefit comes from. Bilingualism really intrigues me. Um, and I think there's so much research still to be done there. And also, I also find it really fascinating that if you have early experience with a second language and then for whatever reason, you no longer have that experience with that language anymore. So say it could be um, a marital breakup or you move country. When these people have gone to learn that, that language again, that they had this early experience with, they have a head start because they have those early connections that were formed in their brain from hearing that language really early in life. That early experience leaves lasting impressions. In the, I think it was the 80s, 70s or 80s, many Korean adoptees went to France or the Netherlands. They were adopted into native Dutch families, native French families. They don't speak Korean. They don't know how to say hello. They are effectively native French speakers, native Dutch speakers. They don't remember Korea. They don't have contact with Korea. They've never been back to Korea. So you'd think that they're not going to show any trace of Korean. They were only there for two months, three months, six months, 12 months, okay, varying times. But you take these individuals. They're now in their mid-twenties, and you give them some Korean things to learn. You compare their performance to their school friends that are not Korean adoptees, but from Dutch families that they were born there. And the Korean adoptees show an affinity. They learn faster. There's something that gets switched on from that early experience that gives them a boost 25, 29 years later. So what is that? How do you explain that? Is that similar to the imprinting that you see in, you know, little ducklings following their mother duck around? We don't know, but we know that they're very deep, somewhat persistent. Otherwise, why would you see an influence? Um, and they're there. Yeah, there's something about preservation of things that happened very early. My family and I lived in Malaysia when I was between the ages of one and three. And learning all of this stuff makes me wonder, maybe I need to go back there and it'll all come flooding into my brain. There is so much more information on how learning more than one language can shape your brain and the way you think. We can't fit it all into this one episode. So coming up on the next episode of Baby Lab... We're going to delve into the science behind the benefits of bilingualism for your baby, for you, and even for the world. Thanks for listening to Baby Lab, a babyology podcast series produced in collaboration with Western Sydney University. If you've got any comments or baby science questions of your own, then please get in touch. We're at podcast at babyology.com.au. I'm Jamila Rizvi, and I'll chat to you soon.
Baby Lab is hosted by me, Jamila Rizvi. The series is produced and edited by Caitlin Gibson and Tim Ritchie is head of podcast. The Baby Lab team would love to hear from you. In the final episode of this podcast series, we'll be answering your questions. Have you ever stared at your baby late at night and wondered what on earth is going on inside that tiny head of theirs? Do you have a burning science question about your baby or babies in general? Email babylab at babyology.com.au and stay subscribed for the final episode eight where your questions will be answered by an expert.